Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together as believers and worship you um, through song, through reading of the word, Lord, and through learning uh, from your word. I pray that you bless us this morning, Lord, and help us glean something uh, from, from the message. Um, I pray for just us as a church that you'll continue to guide us and lead us, um, Lord, as we discern what your will is. And uh, God, we are so thankful for everything you've blessed us with. God, we pray for Evan, we pray for his wife, we pray just for the ministry that they're doing, and pray for their marriage and their family, um, that you will uh, bless them, Lord, and, and lead them, and, and uh, help them uh, continue to do your work uh, over Vietnam, Lord. We thank you once again just for this morning, thank you for Pastor Andy being able to make a trip down here, um, and thank you so much for his family also being here as well, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so this morning, uh, it's no secret, we've got a guest preacher preaching for us this morning, um, Pastor Andy Saul. Uh, he's a potential pastoral candidate for our church, and we're all really excited um, to have him here. Just wanted to introduce him uh, briefly. Uh, he was born, I guess, in Hardy. I know you said you're from there. He, he's from Franklin County area, which isn't too far from us here. Um, he spent the last uh, four years in Pennsylvania, and the 10 years before that in Iowa. Um, and he's been in ministry uh, for about 26 years or so. Um, in the last uh, several, several of those years have been in full-time ministry uh, as a lead pastor. He's here with his wife, Cheryl, and his uh, daughters, Abby and Hannah, so thank you guys for all being here. Uh, Andy, you can come on up here, and uh, we look forward to hearing what you have for us this morning. Good morning, church. I think you can do a little better than that. Good morning, church. Are you happy to be in the house of the Lord today? I pray that you are, because we are here to bless the Lord ourselves and to be taught and blessed by him. So it's wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, Zach has already given you uh, information about me and where I'm from. I am a homegrown boy here. Uh, have many family in Bedford County, and um, I pray that the Lord has been blessed thus far in our worship so far, as we have worshiped him in song and in prayer and in fellowship with one another, and that as we continue in our worship this morning uh, through the preaching of the word, I pray that our hearts will be turned toward a proper understanding of the Lord's will and plan for our lives. It was Alistair Begg who said, we go to the scriptures like the shepherds went to the manger to find Christ. For we find Christ in all of the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the epistles, he is explained. And in the Revelation, he is expected. And it is our goal today to follow that advice, to follow that plan and that procedure and we, like the shepherds, go to the scriptures this morning to find Christ. Isn't it a beautiful thing to know that we are not alone in this world? It's beautiful to know that we can have fellowship with the body of Christ. It's beautiful to know that all across this world, across this nation, across this globe, there are churches who are Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, God-honoring churches desiring to do the work of ministry that we've been called to do. But as we think about this this morning, and I hope that we are encouraged by that fact, 
there's also a question that looms overhead. And it's a question that any church that desires to be God-honoring and God-fearing and, and, and do the work of ministry, we must be able, as the body of Christ, as a local assembly of believers, we must be able to answer this question. And the question is a very simple one, at least sounds simple in form anyway, and that is, what is the mission or the purpose of the church? What are we here for? What are we supposed to be doing? What is our purpose? And if we bring it down to its most basic form, we could ask the question, what are we commanded to do? Now, I'm sure that if I walked up to each and every one of you and, and asked that question outright, uh, that there'd be many different and, and probably really good answers. Uh, because we all have our understanding and our opinion about what the church is for. But isn't it also true that sometimes that we can get so overwhelmed with all that happens within the church, the, the ministries, the things that we try to do, the, the potlucks and, and all of this wonderful, wonderful stuff. It's good stuff. But we forget the simplest of missions, simplest in command anyway, the simplest of missions that we've been given. And so I think that in our churches today, we need to take some time to go back to the basics and be reminded again why we are here. Turn with me, we, turn with me I'll speak in just a second. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to start reading in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16 and read through verse 20. These, these verses will be the focus of our study today, but we're going to give some, some background as well as we move forward in the message this morning. But I want to read for you Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you have given us, for this opportunity to gather together as the local assembly of the body of Christ, to worship you, to praise you, to adore you, to thank you, to lift up the name that is above every name. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we continue in our worship, as we come to the preaching and teaching of your word, that you would impress upon our hearts, that your spirit would illuminate the scriptures to us, that we may see, that we may understand, and that we may apply these things to our lives. God, we love you. God, we praise you. God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we get to this point, we have to ask ourselves, how did we come to the story that we're in now? And so I want to give you some background information, if you will, 
just to kind of help catch you up as to where we are uh, in, in Matthew's account of the ministry of Christ. In chapter 15 uh, of Matthew's gospel, we have the account of Jesus performing uh, many miracles of, of healing people who came to him on the mountain. In verses 29 through 31 uh, of chapter 15, it tells us about uh, Christ's healing ministry, that people would bring people who were uh, lame, who were sick, who were hurting in some way to him, and he would heal them. And then there was one miracle that Matthew gives in detail in Matthew chapter 15, in verses 32 through 39, and that's the feeding of the 4,000 people, 4,000 men, not including the women and children that were there that were fed as well. And Jesus had performed these great miracles, and the people were amazed. I mean, as any time that Jesus did these miraculous things, the people were amazed at what he could do and what he had done, uh, especially the people who were affected by those miracles. Um, and many of them, as you read through the text, you understand that many of them followed him just to get their bellies filled. They thought, hey, Jesus is going to give us food so we can follow him and get fed today. So the people were amazed, but there was a group of people, two groups actually, that kind of joined forces here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who were infuriated that Jesus was doing these things. And they came to him at Magadan asking for a sign to confirm what he was saying and doing, to confirm that he was who he said he was. They always wanted a sign. They always wanted him to show them one more thing one more miracle, one more sign, one more work that would show them, that would prove to them that he was who he said he was. It's interesting as we think about these things, we see them ask for the sign in actually chapter 16, verse 1. It says, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Interesting side note, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, did not get along very well. <laughs> they, were not, they were not best buds, okay? And, and the reason for that was doctrinal differences. Uh, the Pharisees uh, differed in their beliefs from the Sadducees and that the Sadducees did not believe necessarily in the existence of angels. They also did not, more importantly, do believe in the resurrection of the body. They didn't believe that that was the case. The Pharisees did. But when it came, it's interesting to note that when it came to this Jesus guy, when it came to Christ's ministry upon the earth, these two who were constantly at odds with one another came together to fight against him. It says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came asking him for a sign. This is how deep their evil hearts and their unbelief ran in them. And so they come to him asking for a sign, but Jesus does not give them a sign. As a matter of fact, he plainly tells them, I've already given you signs. I've already given you everything that you need. I've already done so much. And if you're not going to be swayed by the things that I've already done, one more sign is not going to make a difference. You don't believe because your hearts are hardened. He actually answers them with a rebuke. If you look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 16, it says, He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is is red and threatening. You know how to inter interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. 
His, his rebuke to them was for being so concerned with the signs from the heavens that they couldn't even discern the signs of the times. That Jesus had, in fact, in his ministry thus far, fulfilled hundreds of prophecies concerning the Messiah. That he had fulfilled hundreds of writings and teachings from all of their Old Testament prophets that proved that he was who he said he was. They were so concerned with signs from the heavens, they couldn't discern the signs of the time. And this, of course, referred to, as we said, the countless ways that the actions of Christ had fulfilled prophecy. And yet they still could not see that the Messiah was standing in their midst. And Jesus tells them, the only sign that you're going to get is that of the prophet Jonah. He had already given them this information, and actually in chapter 12, verses 39 and 40 of Matthew, he said, But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He said, the only other thing that I'm going to give you is I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to rise again. And if you don't believe that, then you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the only sign that you're going to get. And then as we continue in Matthew 16, we come to verses 5 through 12, which happens just before our passage this morning. And Jesus had left these religious leaders. He'd left them to contemplate his rebuke and the things that he had said to them. He departed for the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus and the disciples got to the other side, the disciples realized that they had forgotten to bring bread with them. And Jesus uses this opportunity to begin again to teach the disciples to teach them a lesson regarding what they had actually just experienced with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he tells them very specifically to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, <laughs> we, we see this all throughout the ministry of Christ with his disciples, don't we? Every time he says something to them, they immediately don't get it. And, and they begin to uh, question themselves. And the first thing they did is, oh, he's... He's reprimanding us because we forgot to bring bread. We forgot to bring bread. We didn't bring the food that we needed. He's mad at us now. And I can almost picture Jesus again. He was so patient with them. He reminds them. He says, you were just on the other side of the sea. You saw me feed 4,000 men with a little bit of food. And you're worried? You think that I'm concerned that you didn't bring bread with you? If I can feed 4,000 people, do you think I can handle 13? No, that's not what I'm talking about. He makes his statement again. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the disciples, after him explaining to them, they finally get it. The disciples finally understood that he was speaking about the false doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This false doctrine that they continually propagated and continually spread among the people and their misunderstanding of who Jesus was. They were going to be, the disciples were going to be 
They were the future defenders of the true doctrine, the future defenders of the truth of who Jesus is. And they must both be aware of and prepared for these false teachers. So after this lesson that Jesus gives them, we finally come to our text this morning. And they leave for Caesarea Philippi, and as they're journeying, they're on their journey to it, and this interaction happens uh, between Jesus and his disciples. So we're going to examine it together again today. In the text, we find uh, several things that will be good for us to remember and to understand. The first thing that's very important for us to remember and to understand in this text is this is the first mention of the church in the scriptures. This is the first physical mention of the church in the scriptures. The word that's used here is ecclesia. It means assembly or congregation, but it became the standard word to describe the whole of the body of Christ, the body of Christian believers. This is the first time that it's used here in Matthew chapter 16, used by Jesus Christ himself. He says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will build his ecclesia. Also in this passage is a, a source of controversy that many people have argued over, and that is the meaning of on this rock. Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I don't know if it's as much of an issue here, uh, but where we currently live in Pennsylvania, there is a large Catholic population. And this is one of the main passages that has been used by the Catholic Church over the centuries to prove that, number one, Peter was the first pope, and number two, to prove and validate the necessity of a pope. Because after all, if Jesus claimed that this was needed, then obviously we need to have it. But they misunderstand it. Peter himself actually speaks against such a necessity when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, these words. And you can tell from his words that he is not focusing upon himself as the foundation of the church, but he's focusing upon all of us as part of the foundation built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. He does this numerous times, but here in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says this. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Listen. You yourselves, the living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So even here, Peter himself says no. That's, that's not what's going on here. We all are, through Jesus Christ, living stones being built upon him as the chief cornerstone. When you examine the passage in the Greek, there are two different Greek words that are used here by Christ when he makes this statement. The first one is when he says, you are Peter, which is Petros in the Greek. It means a small rock or pebble or just rock. 
But the second word on this rock, I will build my church, is the word Petra. If you know anything about Jewish history, they have a place called Petra, don't they? That, that place, Petra, is basically a city that is carven out of a solid rock on the side of a mountain. In the Greek, it means huge boulder. So what Jesus said was, you are a small stone, and on this huge boulder, I will build my church. So the question really comes down to this. Who or what is the huge boulder on which Christ will build his church? There's several questions that we can ask ourselves. Does this refer to the disciples themselves? There are some out there that hold to the understanding that Christ was here referring to his disciples as a whole as the foundation on which he would build his church. And don't get me wrong, there is truth in this as they were the first to receive the Holy Spirit. They were the first to receive the Great Commission and the only ones in church history other than the Apostle Paul to hold the office of apostle. That office no longer exists today. And while I agree that this is what Jesus, uh, that, uh, that, that this could be what Jesus had in mind here, I don't think it's all of what he had in mind here. I don't think it's all I don't think it's the complete understanding of what he had in mind here. Others say that you know, they, they affirm that this, uh, this statement refers to the affirmation of Peter's statement. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. This idea is, along with the next one that we're going to talk about, seem to be the most prominent, if you will, and feasible uh, understandings of this passage. That statement that Peter makes, and we're going to cover it in more detail later, um, is not, notice that it's not condemned by Christ, but it's actually applauded by Christ. When, Paul, when Peter makes that statement, Jesus doesn't say, shame on you, Peter, back off, you shouldn't say that. He says, blessed are you, Peter, Barjona, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So God had revealed that this is what Jesus was talking about. This statement is the foundation of the church because it is what must be believed about Jesus. He is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, and he is the son of God, the son of the living God. There is none like him. Remember what Peter said in Acts chapter 4? Uh, verses 11 and 12, he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says in verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter was preaching here in Acts 4 what he had affirmed in Matthew 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that is exactly what we must believe in order to become Christians that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The other part of this is that it does refer to Jesus Christ himself, as we've already read. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the foundation of the church. Peter was a small part of that. But Jesus is the rock that was hewn out of the mountains without hands in the book of Daniel that crushed all other nations. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. 
And the last thing that I want to talk to you about this morning, and this is the focus of the rest of our message this morning, and answers the question that we began with, what is the purpose, what is the reason for the church, is the, these two questions that Jesus asked his disciples as they're walking on the road to Caesarea Philippi. They're on the road and Jesus begins to ask them two questions. The first one, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The second one, who do you say that I am? And it is these two questions that hinge upon the purpose of the church. So let's take them individually. Question number one, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 16. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. The first thing that I want you to note about this first question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? The first thing that I want you to note about this question is that Jesus was not asking this question or the other question to gain information himself. We don't ever want to get that idea. Jesus was not asking this because he was like, man, I really want to know what people are saying about me. And we already know from the character of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the living God incarnate, and we already know from the other gospel accounts that he knew what was in the heart of men. Okay, Jesus was not asking this question to gain information. He was not asking this question in order to, to fill up something that was lacking within him. So this prompts us to ask the question of ourselves, why did he ask the question? Why at this point in this part of the gospel history here, why did he choose to ask this question of his disciples now? I actually think that the answer is quite simple. It was a focus on his disciples, really and truthfully, but it is it carries over to us as well. The first thing is he was teaching his disciples, as he always was during his earthly ministry. While he was with them, he was teaching them. You see, they needed to know and to understand a very important point, and that is the world clearly does not know who Jesus is. The world clearly, obviously does not know who Jesus is. I mean, just by their answer to his question, what do they tell him? They said, some say John the Baptist. Well, there's the first one, John the Baptist is dead. That would have been concerning for some people in leadership in the, in the time, that, that time, wouldn't it? The people that had him beheaded and their constituents to think, wait a minute, is this guy John the Baptist back from the dead? Is he going to come after me? <laughs> you know, am I going to get beheaded because of this? That's a little concerning. Or others say Elijah. Well, what's the big thing about Elijah? Well, Elijah didn't die, did he? He was taken up in a chariot of fire. He was gone. And we're told in, in uh, Malachi, I believe it's Malachi or Micah, I'll get him confused when I'm thinking about the reference, um, but, but we're told in one of those two passages that Elijah must return in the last days. So they're thinking, well, maybe this is Elijah. Maybe, maybe this Jesus guy is Elijah. Well, that clearly isn't the case either, is it? They say, well, he's Jeremiah. Jeremiah was important to them. Jeremiah was the one who tried to warn them that judgment was coming. 
that they were going to be taken captive by the Assyrians and, and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. The, the two uh, splits of Israel there, the northern and southern kingdoms, were going to be taken by Assyria and Babylon. He tried to warn them that judgment was coming. And their prophets kept saying, no, 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 we're going to prosper. Everything's going to be great. And Jeremiah said, no, I'm telling you right now, judgment is coming upon you. You have angered the Lord and that cannot go unchecked, untested. The Lord is going to bring judgment upon you. That would have been a scary thought too for Jeremiah to be back. Maybe he's delivering the same message, right? You're going to be judged again. But they didn't have a clue. They even narrowed it down to one of the prophets. Maybe he's just one of the prophets. Maybe he's a prophet. They didn't understand. All the different ideas of the people that people had about who Jesus was, and none of them even came close to who he actually was. This general tendency in all the responses that the disciples gave uh, in the answer to this question were really an underestimate of Jesus. It fell way short. They give him a measure of respect. I mean, obviously, John the Baptist, even in his time, was respected. Uh, obviously, Elijah and Jeremiah and the prophets were respected by the people. Maybe not always believed and are honored, but they were respected anyway. But they all fall short of honoring him for who he truly is. Their opinion was accurate, but inadequate, we could say. They viewed Jesus to be a forerunner at best. They didn't consider Jesus to be the Messiah, which is the most important thing. The high view of Jesus that they took, even though it was a high view, was the wrong view of Jesus. It's wrong to view Jesus as just a wise rabbi, to view Jesus as just a, a great prophet or a, even a miracle worker. These diverse opinions about who Jesus was prove that he is greater than all of them. Jesus is not in a class among many. He's not the head of a particular class. Jesus is in a class all by himself. He is the only one who could have fulfilled all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. He was the only one who could be the Son of God, the living God incarnate dwelling among us. He was the only one who could fulfill those things. The disciples needed to have both a right understanding themselves of who Jesus really is, as well as the ability to show others the truth as well. And this brings us to our second statement. He was not only teaching his disciples, but he was preparing them. He was preparing them. They were going to be the ones who would begin the work of preaching the gospel, building the church. They needed to know how to answer this question. They needed to know how to recognize the wrong answers of this question. This knowledge would show them the need that is revealed in this question, which we're going to discuss further in just a moment. And the second thing for us to note about this question is that it sets the stage for the next question that Jesus asks. He begins with a more broad stroke. Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
But the next question that Jesus asks of his disciples is governed by their answer and dictated by their answer to this question. If they did not understand the validity of and the reason for the first question, they would not understand the importance of the second question. And the application for us in this passage will become clearer as we now move on to the second question. So Jesus asks first, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? They say, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or maybe one of the prophets. And Jesus' second question, his follow-up, if you will, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is a crux. This is a key moment in the development of the disciples in their ministry. For them to be able to answer this question accurately is very important. Their answer to this question would prove the difference that exists between them and the rest of the world. This also would drive home the point of their responsibility to go and preach the gospel. And it was going to be required of them to do so in their future ministry, in the future command from Christ before his ascension. It was of the utmost importance. He was going to come to them in Matthew 28, which we're going to read in just a moment. But in Matthew 28, he was going to come to them and say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things as I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We see that it is Peter, as it so often is, that steps up and uh, reveals two and very, very important truths about the identity of Christ. His answer is really quite good. Even though it doesn't come from him, it is revealed to him by God the Father, but his answer is right on point. And we're going to talk about that. The first thing that he says is, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. This refers, of course, to the anointed or chosen one of God, the one that had been prophesied about from the prophets of old. This was an affirmation of the identity of Christ as the promised and long-awaited Messiah. When he said, you are the Christ, he was basically looking at Jesus and proclaiming him as the one that they, as the Jewish people, had been waiting on for centuries, for millennia. He had been waiting so long, even from the words of Moses in Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about the bruising of the heel and the crushing of the head of the serpent. The bruising of the heel of the servant and the crushing of the head of the serpent. The first prophecy given about Jesus Christ, about the coming of the Messiah. For many, many, many years, they had been waiting on the promised one who would come and who would save his people from their sins. And Peter proclaims, He's standing right here. He's standing in our presence right now. You are the Christ. 
He then proclaims him not only as you are the Christ, but you are the son of the living God. In Jewish context, to call someone the son of was to equate them to the person to which they were referring. The son was the exact representation of the father. The son could actually stand in the stead of the father and make decisions in his place in Jewish culture. And this is why the Pharisees got so angry every time uh, Jesus was referenced as the son of God. This was blasphemy in their eyes. But in truth, it was his identity as God incarnate. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, Paul states it this way. It says, he, talking about Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word image here refers to the exact representation. The exact representation. In other words, Christ is the very image and supreme representation of the Father in flesh. The word fullness that's used here is the word pleroma, which means superabundance. So this is the picture that Paul gives of Christ. He is the exact representation, the supreme representation, the exact image of the Father. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the great confession every disciple makes. Every follower of Jesus Christ must make this same confession. Christianity is not about a ritual of worship. It's not necessarily about a body of doctrine or a code of conduct. It is about a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christ, and Christ is is God. True disciples confess as Peter did that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. John even warned his readers in 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and that spirit of error. We must confess. Everyone who believes in Christ for salvation must confess that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And again, notice that Jesus does not reprimand 
Peter by this statement for what he says. He actually encourages and confirms it. And all of this points back to Jesus as the true foundation and cornerstone of the church. He bought it with his blood. He sealed it with his spirit. And it belongs to him. So, what is the application for us? You say, Pastor Andy, you've said a lot of stuff, but you haven't answered the question of the message yet. What is the purpose of the church? What is our base purpose? What is our base call as the church of Christ? What are we supposed to do? Well, I'm glad you asked. Just as in the days of the disciples, today the world doesn't know who Jesus is. Nothing has changed. Go talk to people. Go ask people. Ask them who Jesus is. You will get all kinds of answers. You may even get answers that are semi-true or halfway true. But you will not get the confession that he is who he says he is except from a true believer in Jesus Christ. The world still today, out those doors, the world does not know who Jesus is. Several universities have done studies about, you know, you go talk to people about God. You mention the word God, and this is even becoming hard to talk about in this society that we live in today. But you go back 20 years ago, and you go out and talk to people about God, and they have no problem. They'll talk about God all day long. But you mention the name of Jesus, and oh, you have just opened a can of worms. The world has no clue who Jesus is. They have absolutely no clue who he really is. And just as Peter's confession proves, we do know who Jesus is. If you have been bought and paid for by the blood of the Lamb this morning, if you are in here and you have repented of your sin and turned to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance for salvation of your soul, then you most definitely know who Jesus is. So here's the application. Nothing has changed from the time that Peter made this confession to today. Nothing has changed in this context. Nothing has changed. The world doesn't know who Jesus is, but you do. So go tell them. The world doesn't know who Jesus is, but you do. So go tell them. We should be as believers. We should turn every conversation that we can to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't care if you're talking about the weather. You should be able in some sort of casual conversation to turn that conversation towards your Lord and Savior. Because I don't care what's going on in your life. I don't care how good you have it or how bad you have it. The most important thing for you as a believer is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And the most important thing for you to do as a believer is to share that relationship with someone else you're going through a hard time you know what let me tell you about my savior because i still go through hard times i still go through times where my soul is vexed i still go through times where i don't know what's going to happen but you know what i have you know what i have because of my jesus i have peace that passes understanding I have hope that goes beyond anything that you could understand or ever even remotely see upon this earth. Because this is not all there is for me. 
This physical realm that we see before us is not all that there is for us as believers. This is just a stepping stone. We're pilgrims passing through. Our home eternally is in heaven with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let me tell you how that can be your home as well. Let me tell you how that can be your peace as well. Let me tell you how that can be your blessed hope as well. That's the application for us this morning. The world has no clue who Jesus is, but you do. So what are you doing to fix that? What are you doing to change that? Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for this day that you've given us. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you that because you have washed us in your blood, because you have regenerated us, because you have made us a part of your family, baptized us into the family of God, because of your work in salvation, we now have a peace that passes all understanding. A hope that never disappoints, that never wavers, that is unchanged. Because our hope and our peace as believers is not based in anything that this world provides. It's not based in the money that we have in the bank. It's not based in the house that we own or the car that we own or the job that we have or the family that we have. It's not based in any of those things. It is based in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is eternal. So our hope and our peace and our joy and our love is eternal as well. For they are grounded in you, Lord Jesus. And God, as we think upon the questions that you asked of your disciples today, who does the world say that you are? We know that we will get lots of answers. Some of them may be even partially good and partially right. But the true answer, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has died upon the cross to save those whom you have chosen. And the Bible tells us that all who are drawn to you, you will save. And you will not cast out. And you will raise us again in the last day. God, we praise you. We thank you for that truth. But we also ask that you would give us the courage and the boldness to take that truth that we do know who you are and to take it into the world. To preach the gospel to every creature as you tell us in Mark 16, 15. To make disciples to share the gospel, to see them come to faith in Christ, and then to teach them to observe all things as you have commanded. To baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To help them grow in their faith and walk with you. God, help us to fulfill that most base command that you have given to us. Help us not to falter. Help us not to fail. But when we do falter and when we do fail, Convict our hearts. Help us to repent and turn once again to you. God, when we leave the doors of this building, 
we are entering into the mission field. Help us to live as missionaries. Help us to preach the gospel, to make disciples, and to honor you and worship you with our lives. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.